Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be talking The Wrecking Crew. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody. This is an exciting episode of the Music History Project. Uh, today we're going to be talking, as Elizabeth said, about the Wrecking Crew, the studio musicians up in Los Angeles that gathered for countless sessions during the 1960s and 70s um, and uh, followed the format of working together to create the music as they were playing it. Do you guys uh, know how the Wrecking Crew name came about? Yes, because you've told me, but I won't. Be <laughs> but I wouldn't be as good at telling the story as one of you guys. So <laughs> I think you should tell it, Dan. No, I think you should. No, you should. I, tell well, it. I don't really. Okay. <laughs> you don't really know. Don't <laughs> You're like I don't know. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking um, and playing some clips from Hal Blaine, and Hal Blaine is the uh, the drummer from the Wrecking Crew who gets a lot of credit for creating the the name. Uh, they all sort of have told us over the years, and they meaning some of the musicians uh, from these studios in Los Angeles that we've been able to interview for the oral history program, um, told us that they never referred the, to themselves at the time as the Wrecking Crew or anything other than, okay, a group of musicians getting together. Sometimes they were called the A-Team, uh, but mostly uh, they just um, showed up when they were called. And it was only later that uh, Hal, when he was putting his book together, said, you know, we really were the wrecking crew. We were the ones that came in and did our job um, despite what other circumstances were there, no matter who the uh, musicians were, what the groups were, what the style of music, mostly rock and roll and pop music at the time. But if a classical piece was to, uh, called for or uh, something more symphonic or jazzy, uh, they did what they were supposed to do. And oftentimes, as Carol Kay pointed out in her interview with us, they collaborated uh, with the song, adding, in her case, a bass line or something unique or different that wasn't necessarily written into the music up until that point, but became part of the recording uh, because of their own unique stamp and, and uh, contribution. And I think that's part of why we gravitate towards uh, wanting to learn more about who the Wrecking Crew uh, were and what they did because not only did they make all these hit records, uh, but they did it with uh, great finesse and uh, often under the radar. And only really recently when uh, uh, Denny Tedesco created the, um, or do you say create or directed a uh, documentary with the same title, did a lot of people start really understanding what their role was in popular music. So it's kind of fun that we have interviews that go along with that that we can share with you today. Yeah, and that uh, <clears throat> documentary that Dan just mentioned from Denny is available on 
a very big streaming platform. I don't know if we can we say it. Can we be like Netflix? I mean, Go on Netflix and watch it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's everywhere you would think it would be. Yeah, and you can buy it physically too. Yeah, so oh, nice. yeah. it gives a face to the voices you're going to be hearing today because most of the people that Dan has had the opportunity to sit down with have were also a part of this documentary that uh, Denny did. So it's so pretty cool. I'm kind of curious, Mike. What comes to mind for you when you hear the term "wrecking crew"? Um, it makes me think of just like a group of musicians that kind of took over just mm. a whole like like there was an, an industry but these guys were and girls were just on everything and they were the go-to musicians at the time in that area well said how about any thoughts you have about it elizabeth uh probably just learning more doing the research for this podcast and then working here and getting more knowledge about it all is it seems like this group of mus- studio musicians really defined the era of pop music from what the 60s the 1960s i mean when watching denny's documentary and then listening to these interviews and hearing them name the tracks they were on it's everything everything you know from the 60s they chances are they at least one of them was on which is insane i mean that's crazy and the general public doesn't know that and doesn't know any of these people's names which is yeah that's definitely one of the biggest things is like you could walk by these people on the street and you're not going to recognize them unless you know the Wrecking Crew really well. Unless you're Dan. Yeah, unless you're Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but you know their songs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, you know everything that they've played on. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, it's just crazy. Another element that I've always appreciated is since their notoriety, if that's a good word for it, um, when Hal wrote his book and then the documentary came out, is that there's been more and more attention paid to other similar groups of musicians in other parts of the country and the world. Uh, The Muscle Shoals comes to mind and the A-Team in Nashville come to mind. I think that's really neat that other musicians who have for many, many years been completely off the radar are getting a little bit of notoriety as a result of these guys. And and, uh, so that's exciting. And maybe those will be other podcasts that we can do down the line because we've also had the opportunity to interview some of those other musicians as well. But back to focusing on the uh, the Wrecking Crew, uh, the guy who we mentioned earlier is really kind of the father of the group. Um, that's Hal Blaine, and I understand that's where we're going to start today. Yeah, so we're going to hear Hal, who plays the drums. He's Correct. still drumming, right? Yeah. Yeah. Giving um, clinics, and yeah, yeah, he's very active and still. We're going to hear him kind of introducing the concepts behind the Wrecking Crew, as well as the, the Wrecking Crew's kind of... what. I don't know what title would you give Phil like unofficial producer organizer of them all producer I mean I know he's a producer but he kind of was the glue that held them together for a while right right because he was producing records he needed people he could count on to come in uh, at a um, consistent level mm-hmm. um, and I think that's definitely right that uh, Phil is the guy who brought them together certainly originally mm-hmm. so we're going to hear again we're going to hear Hal talking about the origins of the Wrecking Crew and then working with Phil Spector which is a name you probably recognize as well Phil Spector <laughs> was one of my mentors he was one of the first people that hired me in Hollywood and we did Be My Baby that great record and, and uh, all those wonderful records that we did and it was the entire what he called the wall of sound and I used to call the guys the wrecking crew because whenever we went into a studio 
the older established musicians who were in the, with the beautiful blue blazers and the neckties and so forth, they used to look at us in Levi's, T-shirts, pack of cigarettes, everybody smoked in those days, and these older gentlemen would say, these kids are going to wreck the business. And I'm sure that a lot of musicians today feel that way with some of this heavy metal sort of stuff that goes on, or the, the gangster rap and all that craziness that kill, and it's just not music. But we were the wrecking crew, and we got very famous as the wrecking crew. All of a sudden I became a contractor, almost unheard of in Hollywood. So once again, that was Hal Blaine, and we'll be hearing from him again a little bit later. Um, next up, we're going to hear from Denny Tedesco, who's actually the son of Tommy Tedesco, who's a guitarist, part of the Wrecking Crew. And Denny was the director, creator of the documentary All About the Wrecking Crew. So we're going to hear him now talking about the beginnings of the Wrecking Crew. I'm starting to find things out now. He's, you know, he played with Chico Hamilton and he played with uh, um, all the local LA guys. You know, there's that jazz scene going on there. Mm -hmm. But once he gets in the studios and he starts doing, it's the rock and roll stuff, it's not because he loves it, there's an opening and he's taking those demos. Once you start taking those, you know, jobs and they start feeding you more, then you're kind of moving into that direction. And that's what, you know, basically, that's how the Wrecking Crew, in a sense, started, because Hal, Hal, Hal Blaine says, the older guys said they're gonna wreck the business playing this rock and roll stuff. Well, it means two things. These guys are playing the rock and roll stuff because the legit guys, you know, the older jazz guys who are in the studios, they're playing, you know, the, you know, the Billie Holidays or the, whatever they're playing, or in the movies, they don't want to take a chance on those things or demos, which were, let's say, you know, ten dollars a song or two for two for twenty or or whatever it was, three for twenty-five or something. It was, you know, they had a gimmick for non-union. Mm. So, but the young guys will take that chance. They're getting paid. You know, my dad was. Don't forget, go back ten years. He wasn't going to be a guitar player. You know, he had no idea to go to New York to find a career in guitar. That was not even part of his mindset. Mm. It just happened. So once he got into it and realized how much he loved playing and getting paid, oh my God. So when you get into the rock and roll thing, and again, it wasn't a, he wasn't, he didn't care. He just wanted to play guitar and get paid. So three chords, I'll do it as long as you want. So now that we've heard from Hal and Denny about how the Wrecking Crew came to be, we thought it would be a good transition to kind of break down uh, some, not all, but some of the members of the Wrecking Crew. And what better way to do that than to either hear it straight from this group of musicians or have them talk about other people that maybe Dan hasn't interviewed or we perhaps just didn't pull for this particular podcast. So the first up is Hal again, and he's going to be giving us kind of a general synopsis of who all was in the wrecking crew during their height. The thing was, there was a certain nucleus. Myself, Joe Osborne, and made bass player, Ray Pullman on bass. Um, there were various guitarists, you know, Tedesco and Barney Kessel, who lives down here in, in, in Howard Roberts. A lot of fine guitarists, a lot of great bass players, a lot of great everything. Pianists. Al DeLore was playing piano. Leon Russell was playing piano. So it was various different nucleus. Mm -hmm. 
uh, or made up the nuclei of this nucleus of musicians. Usually Earl Palmer on drums, me on drums. So-and-so on bass, so-and-so on bass. It was, we rarely worked together, although Earl, I forget, I'm using the microphone. What are you doing, dummy? Earl and I did do several projects together where we played with people. So next up, we're going to hear a new voice. Um, this is going to be Gene Sip Cipriano, and he's going to be talking about um, the studio work with the Wrecking Crew and more specifically playing the oboe with them. Well, I had a lot of friends that played with the Wrecking Crew. Tommy Tedesco, <clears throat> Dennis Budimir, and Carol Kay. And some leader came in and he said, I need an oboe player for this one song. And they all gave him my name, and that's how I got started. So every time they, <clears throat> they needed a, an oboe for the Wrecking Crew, they would call me. Hmm. Yeah, that was neat. I remember we, Harry Nielsen, we'd get a call to do a record date with him for, ten, for 7 o'clock. He'd show up at 10. <laughs> they were so loose, you know, coming with a bottle of brandy in his hand, bag of Coke. <clears throat> and we started at 10, and 5 o'clock we're still recording. I say, I'd say, Harry, I have a, a nine o'clock call. I, I'm gonna go home and shower, man. He said, okay, Sip, I'll see you tonight. They were so loose. Money meant nothing to them back then. We're really glad that uh, just really recently we were able to conduct that interview in the Los Angeles area at Sip's house. Um, it's really neat to be in his home. Uh, all over the place are photographs of his uh, amazing recording career with some of the people that he's played with along with awards and posters and things like that and also i was really uh interested in some of the advertisements that he appeared in to promote musical instruments that he has played over the years like his uh, selmer saxophone uh, was an advertisement that he uh, has hanging on his wall and all throughout his home he has little signs that say yo on them um, and this is because uh, Sip gives himself credit for uh, introducing the term yo, uh, at least in the Los Angeles uh, music culture. He, uh, he owns up to the fact that he got it from somebody else, uh, another musician in, uh, I think, New Jersey. Um, but when he came to the West Coast, nobody was using it as a, I don't know, a greeting, a salutation or whatever. And so he started using it to the point where many people in and around uh, Los Angeles and certainly in the recording world uh, during that time, this is the late 50s, early 60s, equate that term to SIP. So SIP uh, gets credit for at least introducing it to that particular culture. And so you can't say see sip without saying yo uh, so that's the yo story <laughs> you guys wanted it you got it uh, <laughs> whether, but he's a cool whether guy. you liked it or not <laughs> and, and you know he he was one of those musicians and i know mike has met some of these in fact frankly i think mike is one of these uh he just picks up another instrument because he can oh okay mike playing the drums as a kid but also teaches guitar or taught guitar for many years just picks up another instrument because it's there and there's a need for it and sip is like that too you know he, he started off with saxophone but somebody needed a flute so he picked up the flute and somebody needed an oboe or a bassoon and not only is he playing the oboe or the bassoon but it 
turns out to be the beginning of one of Frank Sinatra's records all by himself doing a solo. It's just amazing talent that this guy had and staying power. He was recording uh, for many, many decades and continues to be. In fact, uh, the day of the interview that we had with him, um, he got two calls while we were there for uh, gigs coming up the following day. So uh, very active still in the uh, recording area. Um, but also a very nice guy, as you could hear in his voice. Next up, we're going to hear from Chuck Berghofer, um, and he is going to be talking about working with Carol Kay. Speaking of the wrecking crew, what was it like with you working with Carol? Wow, great. You know, I mean, we, uh, yeah, never had a, nothing but good words, you know, yeah, never, never had a problem. Always, always fine. She was another one that's on almost all that stuff. I mean, met a lot of it. Well, clearly, Carol Kay and Chuck worked together, and I think that's uh, pretty evident in a lot of the recordings that you hear, where there are a, there's a switch between a stand-up bass and an electric bass. Um, but clearly, uh, her instrument was the uh, Fender Precision bass, and she really owned it. So it'll be neat to kind of hear her weigh in as we talk a little bit more about the Wrecking Crew in our podcast today. And I believe our first segment from Carol Kay is talking about uh, the great guitarist Barney Kessel. Barney Kessel was so funny on 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 a, on a Phil Spector date. By the way, Barney Kessel was his his teacher for a while. Phil took lessons from him, and so Barney finally told him, he says, "Don't play guitar. Go uh, go to work in the studios." <laughs> Don't, right. don't play, don't play. You know, so he, he hired him on, on a lot of the dates, you know, and, and Barney, uh, there's a nervous guy, a very a very nervous guitar player that's into everybody's thing, you know, kind of, a, I, a, there's a name for that, I can't think of it. He, he didn't mean anything about it, it's just, just a nervous guy, get, get on our nerves, you know. So he made him, it, it, we were at the end of like a four or five hour date with Phil, you know, everybody had to go to the bathroom and everything. It was the very last minute, you know, and the guy made a mistake on the guitar on the take. And we were like, kill this guy, kill it, because it put us into overtime a whole half hour, see, so we were going to have to put up with Phil another half hour. And, and so Barney Kessel stood up. Now, it's probably not funny today, you know, but Barney stood up and he says, you know, Don, if, if this was an airplane and you were a pilot, we, we'd have crashed by now. <laughs> you know, so it, it was just funny. It's just funny, you know, buddy. So that was Carol Kay talking about Barney Kessel. And we're going to actually hear her voice again now. And she's going to be talking about working with Earl Palmer, who Dan actually had the pleasure of interviewing as part of the NAMM Oral History Collection, but uh, we decided collectively not to add him to this podcast, this particular episode. Um, And that's a great excuse for you to jump online and check out the collection at www.nam.org slash library. So here's Carol talking about Earl Palmer. I got on a date with Earl Palmer at Gold Star, and we'd listen to a playback, and I'm like, yeah, man, I sound great. You know, and Earl said, hey, you sound good, Carol. I said, oh, thank you, Earl. You know, he says, but you're rushing. I said, rushing? I'm not rushing. And then I listened to it. He was right. And I said, uh-oh, trouble, <laughs> trouble in, in Disneyland. You know, so I went home, and I practiced with the electric metronome putting this on two and four, just like we used to do in our jazz days. 
that's too fast. But anyway, let me still slow it down. When this started feeling good, then I knew it was in. It took me two, two or three days of practice to get the feeling in and get the time. So, I mean, so after that, I was never arrogant again, you know, because you, you realize that, that you've got to have a different attitude for, for your music. And you've you, you got to realize that you've got to have everything together, your, your, your business together, you've got to have your sense of time together, your, your comradeship with, with, with everybody and everything. So, so, I mean, so I got brought down quite, quite a few nights you know because my sense of time was not there on the bass I lost it between I mean guitar and the technique of bass which is very very different than than uh, uh, than, than guitar I was there to help everybody get a hit record and, and I knew my place then you know so it was fun because I, I was single I was raising my three kids they were growing up great you know um, my, my kids I, I think the younger um, what well, well, my son uh, probably thought, in, in fact, the younger girl did too, that, I mean, that everybody's mom was a bass player <laughs> in the studios, you know. My, I mean, my, my son went to school and he bragged, he said, well, my mother's a beach boy, and he got beat up for that, you know, so, he, you know, he couldn't say anything. So, anyway, you, you had some other questions, I know, yeah. <laughs> this is great stuff. You, you mentioned Earl Palmer, one of the great Oh, he's, a, you guys he's my pal. Yeah. Wonderful stuff together. Thank you, thank you. I'll tell him what you said. He's he, he's he's a dear friend. I've been, uh, I've known Earl since about 1957. So we're talking about 50 years. You know, I'd, I'd always razz him, and he'd always razz me. You know, uh, I, it, it it was it was like a brotherhood with with everybody there. You know, and being a being the only woman, and I never really thought gave it that much thought, but. Looking back, I think, uh, you know, the, the guys will test you a little bit. It's really neat to hear Carol talking about Earl Palmer. Um, as Elizabeth said earlier, I was very honored to have an interview conducted with Earl. And it was just amazing. What a fabulous guy. Amazing career. Just like almost all of the folks that we're talking about today in the Wrecking Crew. Long list, as Mike has pointed out, of amazing credits, great hit records that we all know. And there was something really special about Earl. He was a very dignified kind of guy, didn't really talk too much about it. Um, but every once in a while, I would mention an artist, and then he would start listing all these amazing songs that he uh, played the drums for. So uh, a great career, and uh, we've lost him, but uh, so happy to have his interview as part of our collection. Now that we kind of have an idea of the who's who of the Wrecking Crew, um, by all means, this isn't the entire collection of studio musicians, and this is just a sampling of them. We thought, what better way to transition than to talk about some of their more notable recording sessions, the sessions and the songs that even if you are not well-versed in the music industry, the music products industry, you've probably heard these songs. You probably know these artists, um, but you probably don't know that The Wrecking Crew recorded uh, the songs for their albums and things like that. So we're going to start with Hal Blaine, who's going to be talking about playing with Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and how, um, especially with that Jan and Dean record, there was dual drums, which was kind of a unique feature for the time. And what's really neat about Hal is, obviously, he's sort of the the uh, the poster child of the, the Wrecking Crew, having written the book first and, and providing his observations. But also uh, a very, very um, 
nice gentleman who takes his time to help other people, giving clinics all around the world. He is almost always at the NAM show behind some percussionist booth, taking time, telling uh, whoever wants to hear, you know, what his thoughts about everything from holding the sticks to certain beats, uh, what gear that he uses. Uh, a very, very nice guy. And we very feel very blessed here at the NAM building that uh, one of his drum kits is on display in the Museum of Making Music. He's been here several times. Uh, he's coming back again. Um, just a real friend and a, a, a great person to uh, be associated with. And as a result, he keeps winning all these awards because he keeps doing so much for the community. He's won the, uh, the Tech Award Lifetime Achievement. He's just recently been given a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. Um, just an amazing career that uh, continues to uh, provide us with inspiration. So, um, as Elizabeth said, let's uh, hear from Hal. We did all the Jan and Dean records together. We're all dual drums. That was unheard of in those days. Whose idea was that, by the way? I think it was Jan Berry, who was Jan of Jan and Dean. Right. That's a terrific idea. It was great. It was great. It was, and as I said before, if it felt good, we had a good record. All the work I did with the Beach Boys, almost from day one, every record we ever did, Brian would call me in the booth to listen to a playback. Does it feel right? Is it good? Do we have a good take? Absolutely. Or I'd say, well, I think we can clean it up a little, whatever. Always. And, and look at 35 years later, they're still the Beach Seniors. You know, they're all in wheelchairs, for crying out loud. And they're still going out doing concerts, which is fine. I have nothing against that. Never, never, studio? no. The only touring I ever did was with Simon Garfunkel. We had done so many hit records, Bridge Over Trouble Water, all those great records that we did, The Boxer, uh, The Graduate. Um, I toured with them for television, where everything was filmed. I toured with John Denver almost 11 years. Uh, when I started with John, he was comparatively unknown, and it built from there. And speaking of the Beach Boys, um, next we're going to hear from Chuck Berghofer again, and he's going to be talking about working with them and with Brian Wilson. They were fairly difficult to work with. They wanted Brian Wilson, wanted to, he knew exactly what he wanted to hear, so you have to over and over, oh, no, not try this way, do this, no, you know. And so by the time you get after, you know, I had to have a little patience, you know, be easy. There's some guys that didn't have patience would just say, here, you do it or something, you know. But, uh, so that that was a little little uh, pressing sometimes. But uh, getting into the studio thing, though, like you know, where where you do TV shows on, you know, uh, reading music, uh, learning all that. I mean, I didn't really know that much about it. Joe Mondra, you know, wonderful bass player. That was I've got two of his basses actually. Uh, kind of took me under his wing and. Uh, he said, well, can you, you know, show me how to hold the bow, start with, uh, can you count to four? Yeah. And so, well, you can read then, one, two, three, four, two, two, mm, uh, you know, whatever. And, uh, and bass parts aren't nearly as hard as uh, playing woodwind section or the violin section or something. So, you know, I gradually got to the point where I was reading and stuff. But I learned it all on the, on the job, you know, it's kind of interesting. Can't, uh, not, not like I said before, you have to go to college to learn that stuff. I think self-taught is almost better. 
Okay, next up on our podcast for the Wrecking Crew and our interviews from the NAM Oral History Program, we turn once again to Denny Tedesco, who was the director of the documentary that uh, hopefully you have had the chance to view. If not, it is available online. And uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I know Mike was there for our interview with Denny. Down to earth, really nice guy. Brought his brother along with the interview. Really happy to share more stories about his dad. He's obviously very proud of his dad. And really, that was the impetus of the whole documentary that later got to showcase so many other musicians, which I think was a a bonus for all of us um, watching. And I also understand that um, Elizabeth watched the movie with a very special person. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Myself. No, and my dog. Oh, wait. No, you mean my kid. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I made my my infant son watch it with me because I am hell-bent on... I am... Heck bent. Heck bent. <laughs> on. <laughs> I am determined to make sure that, uh, unlike me, my son, Connor, has music in his household growing up. So one day when Dan interviews him, because Dan will still be walking the earth conducting interviews, <laughs> and he asks him that question, it can come full circle and he can say yes. <laughs> I, I just love the imagery of me walking the earth conducting interviews. I imagine like Moses treading the desert and it's just Dan with a camera and a mic. <laughs> Did you have music in your house growing up? <laughs> I can't wait to interview him yeah. because of course I'm going to ask him that and he's going to say, well, yes, I remember. My mom's insane, so of course. <laughs> Had to put that in for posterity. Yeah, shout out. Shout out to Connor. So here's Denny talking about uh, the history of rock and roll, Ricky Nelson, Phil Spector, and recordings of his dad. So then I think uh, the first rock and roll dates, when he says was when he was subbing on uh, the Ricky Nelson show. So he's subbing for Bob Bain. And I think that's when he first heard about the term rock and roll. You know, because I asked the guys, you know, everybody assumes 55 is a rock and roll thing, but I don't know if anybody's catching on to a name at that point. I mean, you can talk to historians, but these guys aren't thinking that way. You know, they hear different, you know, like rhythm and blues. The guys are saying race music. Mm. You know, it's black music, it's race music. They're not talking necessarily rock and roll or it's hillbilly or, you know, that stuff is coming through. Um, so he starts doing, he did a couple things, you know, with uh, Ricky Nelson. So he does Fool's Rush In, you know, is one of the, you know, first big ones. And then, you know, then Phil Spector comes in. Um, Phil, I think, is first before he starts working with the Beach Boys. But Janet Dean is also in the mix here. Mm-hmm. You know, Janet Dean, you know, they're singers. They're not musicians, so they had Earl Palmer first, and I think Renee Hall were uh, some of the first guys that they were doing their demos before they were, I think it was when they were just uh, Arnie, when it was um, Jan and Arnie. Um, And then Dad starts doing all the dates with, you know, those guys. And it just leads to another one, you know. Contractors pick up on who's working, and that's how it started. So they go Beach Boys, Sinatra, then it's this one, then it's that one. Um, go ahead and throw me a question. No, that's Keep great. going. That's really cool. So, 
What would you? What are some of the recordings of your dad's? That recordings of those days. Um, well, "Be My Baby" is you know obviously a, one of the big ones because on the back side, the name of the backside, the B side is called Tedesco and Pittman, and the reason is Phil, the Phil did not want the B side to ever be played on a radio station because he got screwed on something where he you know put all his effort into the A side and the B side went out and became a hit, and he was very upset about it. So he made sure the B sides were always throwaway songs, just jams. So that became, you know, Tedesco and Pittman on that one. Um, and then, you know, he did uh, Strangers of the Night. Um, Strangers of the Night was actually, and it's funny because you would talk to my father. The question I had for all those guys, were you ever intimidated by any of the artists? And they said, no, there's no reason to be intimidated. A, no one's going to play guitar like my father of the artists. You know what I mean? If they are, they're going to be playing themselves. So that wasn't it. And they're also younger. Dad's 30 in 1960. Hal's 31 in 1960. So the Beach Boys, they're kids. They're 19. They don't have those chops. So nobody has those chops. But when you talk about Sinatra, you're talking about Frank. Now there's a level of, not intimidation, but you better get, you know, make sure you're on it. And they would rehearse for a few hours before Frank would get there. Frank would walk in. They'd knock it out in three, two, three takes. So that was Denny. And we're going to go back. They're going to throw it back to Carol Kay. And she's going to be talking about another kind of infamous recording session. And the cool thing about her interviews, um, she's done two with Dan, is that throughout both of them, she brings out her bass and she switches to a guitar on occasional electric guitar and she plays a lot of the bass lines and the licks and stuff like that that were on these famous recordings um so definitely check out those clips online because you get to hear her play which is really neat too um but on this particular clip she's going to be talking about working with Sonny and Cher which is really neat I got on the Sonny and Cher thing a uh, date, date one time and uh, Sonny had brought in this little tune, you know, now you, you'd taken some tunes and everybody would say, oh, what great songs they were. You should have heard them when, when we cut them. <laughs> they sounded like, you know, they were terrible when you first heard those tunes. It was like, oh, okay, what do we do to this one to make it sound good? You know, that kind of thing. And Sonny brought in this one tune and the bass player, uh, I wasn't the bass player, I, I, I was starting to play bass, but, but I happened to be playing, playing the, the the Dano bass guitar, the click bass. And here's what the bass player was doing on this tune. Ba, 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 see. Uh, I'm sorry, wait a minute. Ba, biddy, biddy. Ba, ba, da, ba, da, ba. One chord tune. Ba, 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 <laughs> so I thought, uh oh, we got to pull a rabbit out of the hat for, for this one. So, so like, like most people, uh, I'm, I'm experimenting, you know, so I went, you know, on, on, the bass or, uh, on the bass guitar. The third line I came up with was, and it clicked. La -di -da -da -da, and the beat goes on, and the beat goes on. Yeah. 
And, and Sonny heard it and he gave it to Bob West, the Fender bass player, to play, and you hear me playing it with him, see. Huh. So all of a sudden that, that one chord tune, and you know how to play on one chord, huh? what do you do on one chord? That line came, and I thought, that's it, the bass player man is the key to hit records, you know. So, so I, I was very careful about that, but also playing bass, you have to have great, a great sense of time. Uh, I, I, I got, I was making so much money there and I had just gotten my second divorce. I had divorced a man who was kind of a mean, mean guy, you know, so I had three kids by that time, a mother and a live-in housekeeper to support. So the six, six mouths to feed, so I, was, I wouldn't say no to anybody, <laughs> you know, it's like I, I was out there getting in the studios and um, got, got, uh, uh, on a date with, uh, but you know, but but I had gotten, I mean, arrogant too. You know, I, I, oh yeah, man, I'm I'm responsible for this hit and that hit. You know, I, I my, my self-esteem was way past <laughs> where it should be. Okay, so if you haven't figured out already, one of the awesome parts of our job is being able to interview people that you have long since admired. And I remember as a kid seeing. Um, Frank DeVito's name on the back of an Elvis album and thinking, wow, this guy's been on so many different recordings and then having the chance to meet him and then find out what a terrific person he is. He not only was a, a great drummer, continues to play drums in the Los Angeles area, but in 1971, along with his son, he formed a uh, percussive um, products company, I guess is the best way to say it, um, creating all kinds of hardware and and uh, different things for drummers, uh, including thrones and things like that, just accessories and, and other instrument parts, and uh, very successful at providing that and uh, being a part of the NAM family. So uh, we had an opportunity to, to do uh, a couple of meetings with Frank uh, before he finally agreed to do an interview, and the interview was, as you're about to find out, absolutely captivating very nice guy who's had an amazing career played with everybody from elvis and um frank sinatra to uh just about all those gigs that we talked about earlier in the podcast uh, uh, the beach boys and uh, even going back into the jazz era of the 50s he worked with uh, charlie parker and some others so uh, an amazing career and uh, so we're delighted to be able to share another element of the Wrecking Crew. Here is Frank DeVito. Oh, let me tell you how I got the job with Frank Sinatra. It's interesting because I, people say to me, wow, you got the job and you're only in your 20s with Frank Sinatra. He was the biggest thing in the world at that time. I said, right, you must have auditioned and, and went through a whole big scene, you know, to get the job. And I said, no. I said, I was living on a in a hotel on Vine Street, and right next door there was a little spaghetti joint, <clears throat> and a friend of mine <clears throat> was in there eating spaghetti, Tommy Tedesco, guitar player. He's a good buddy of mine. You know, we were doing rock dates together and stuff. And I walk in there and I said, Tom, you know, and I sat down next to him. And he said, uh, did you know Tom? You know who Tommy is, right? Sure. Yeah, only he and Hal Blaine, you know, did all those records. And uh, Tommy was great. Uh, for, he's from Buffalo, you know, upstate New York. So uh, he said, what are you doing? And I said, I just, oh, that, I said, I just finished a job with Georgie Auld six months, you know, at the, at the Peacock on, uh, on um, uh, Hollywood and Western, Hollywood and Western Peacock. And across the street was Jazz City, you know, played Miles and all of that. I said, I just finished that, so 
you know, I'm just freelancing, doing a few record dates. He said, oh, Frank Sinatra is looking for a drummer. So I said, yeah, right, you know, Frank Sinatra, wow, <laughs> you know, what chance do I have, you know? And he said, here's a dime. That's what a phone call was back then. I think it was a dime or a quarter. No, it must have been a dime. He said, here's that dime. Go over to the phone on the wall there and call uh, the answering service, call Nina. Ask for Bill Miller. Call Bill Miller and tell him I told you to call him. I said, really? So I said, what the heck, you know? So I did. I went over. And we, and uh, the musicians uh, uh, back, at that, uh, back at that time, we had, um, uh, we had um, uh, an answering service. Uh, uh, it, it was called uh, Call Nina, Hollywood 23311. And uh, it's funny, I remember that, that number after all these years, huh? So uh, I, I called, I said, hi, uh, can I speak to Bill Miller? Uh, who's calling? I said, uh, Frank DeVito, I'm, I'm a drummer. Oh, uh, hold on. So he came on, he came on the line. Bill Miller was a great guy. Very, very laid back. Very laid back. Didn't talk too much. Didn't just play that great, tasteful piano with Frank. Didn't play too much. He just knew what to do. He was, he was born to play with Sinatra. It's great. Yeah, I said, uh, you know, I'm a drummer, and, and I just ran into Tommy Tedesco. He said, you need a drummer for Frank? He said, uh, a, a, a pause there. Uh, who you played with? And I said, well, the, the, the buddy DeFranco and, and Terry Gibbs. And um, uh, uh, I was with a big, couple of big bands, uh, Hal McIntyre. And I even played with Glenn Gray for a while. When I was 19 years old, I went on Glenn Gray's band. I got fired after about two months because that was a real old-time band, and I was making bombs like, like uh, Max Roach and Art Blakey, boom, boom, on these tunes. And I'll never forget the bass player. He was, <laughs> they were desperate for somebody. So my cousin was playing trombone on the band, Freddie, and, and he got me, because I was always saying to him, and my cousin, uh, another Zito brother, uh, he played on Kenton's band and, and uh, Artie Shaw, a lot of the bands at that area. And when he, he'd come to New York, and we'd be at Charlie's Tavern, somebody's hanging out, and I'd say, Freddie, get me on one of those bands. I want to play, play, play with a big band. He said, you don't have enough experience. You're playing with these bebop guys, you know. Cool it, wait till you get more experience, you know. I always bug him about that, and he was right. <laughs> so one time they were desperate, and they were leaving town, uh, uh, leaving from the uh, in front of the President, uh, President Hotel. That's where all, a lot of the musicians lived anyway, in New York. So he, he said, uh, so he got me on the band. I was 19, and I'd never played much with a big band. That's, that's before, this was before the McIntyre, Hal McIntyre, I think. Yes. Anyway, uh, uh, I went out, and, and I'll never forget, and I had this small drum kit, bebop drum kit. And the bass player said, said to me, you know, the last drummer, when he played, the, the drum used to move, boom, 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 you know, on 4-4 four, four, back in the old time. He was an old-time drummer, and he's playing boom, boom, jaboom, which was his style, I guess, his style. And he said, how come it's not... I said, oh, I'm not playing it. And we didn't play the bass drum only once in a while, you know. So <laughs> later on, I learned how to do that. But, but that was fun. Anyway, they were very nice. They, they put up with me for about two months, and, and, I, and I got fired. Uh, it's an old Irish guy who's the band, uh, the band manager, 
and and my last day was was someplace I don't know Pittsburgh or Pacoima who knows and and um, they gave me they paid me for two weeks and I said I'm fired he said I said am I getting fired he says no you're not getting fired he said they had a trombone player on the band earlier Leon Cox great great trombone player but I guess he got drunk and caused the scene and this manager says you're getting fired. Leon got fired. That's fired. You're not fired. You can come back with the band later when you learn to play a little more, you know. And he, and he took the money, and, and my money was paid cash, and he put it in my pocket. And, and I, okay, I'm a kid with a cardboard suitcase, you know. And he, uh, and he took a pin, a safety pin, and he pinned it. <laughs> so I got on the, on the train, you know, back to New York. And that, that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> so anyway, with Sinatra. I, uh, I'm talking to Bill Miller, and uh, he said, who have you played with? I said, um, I, I told him, and he was impressed, Buddy DeFranco and Terry Gibbs, he figured, you know. And Bill is not the kind of guy who's going to get on the phone and call a lot of people and everything. He figured, Tommy, people had such respect for Tommy mm. Tedesco, and rightly so, you know. And, and I was working uh, quite a bit with Tommy around. So uh, he said, oh, okay. He said, uh, well, be in Las Vegas at the Sands Thursday uh, at 2 o'clock, we'll rehearse. I said, that's it? He says, all right, I'll see you there, and he hung up. So I came back to the table. He said, what did he say? I got hired on the phone. I didn't ask about money or anything, you know, you know. And I couldn't believe it. That's how I got it. A spaghetti joint and ran Tommy and I'm on the phone. That's how I got the job with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and I lasted there about two and a half years and I got along well. Frank was great. He was 41, 42 years old when I was with him. He was great. And uh, yeah, he, um, uh, what was I was thinking of the guitar player. There was a guitar player on the band who was a friend of mine, Nick Bonney. And he was with, with Frank for about two years before that, another upstate New York, uh, New York guy. And uh, no, we had a great time with Frank. I mean, we were in our 20s, and he was the hottest thing going, the Sands Hotel in the Copa in New York. And, and we went on tour. And, and I did uh, uh, some of the uh, Capitol records, um, Witchcraft, Witchcraft, Tell Her You Love Her, Something Wonderful Happens in Summer. And then later on, I played a part of the album, the Hal Blaine, it was Hal Blaine's gig, uh, Strangers in the Night, he played that, and, but I played on uh, Summer Winds. So I got to play on some good Sinatra. And then I did a live album with Frank. Uh, we, we went out for some weekends, we charter a plane with Nelson's band, mm. which was a lot of fun. <clears throat> and uh, one week, weekend we played Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. And, uh, uh, Wally Hyder, who's a, who's a recording uh, uh, engineer, or whatever, and would go on locations. He was with us, and he was recording every night. So uh, uh, the album is is uh, is called Sinatra '57, and it's live album, and we did it in Seattle, and uh, it uh, they did nothing with it for years. Uh, because it was rough. We were in like this big barn of a place and, and it was kind of rough. And then they, uh, as time went on, uh, you know, with the advances and all the equipment and everything cleaned up and his daughter, Tina, reproduced it, whatever. And 
didn't 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 add anything on it. Just cleaned it up, and it's a good album. And Frank sounds great on it, and and we uh, we uh, the band sounds pretty good. The orchestra with strings and everything, the charter plane. Yeah, a great bass player who's who, who's on a lot of Capitol uh, recordings. Joe Comfort. I loved playing with him. He was solid, beautiful, nice, nice man. He came to California years ago with Nat Cole. That was one of his, Nat Cole's trios. And they recorded a Capitol, and then the, everybody hmm. loved this playing so much, you know. Great, great guy. Yeah, he was. And, uh, but, um, so I got to work with, uh, oh, with, with Frank, and, and then he, once in a while, he would take off for quite a while to do a movie so that I'd have time. Uh, and, and I would work. I went out uh, with Ella and did a, t a tour most of the summer of 58, whatever, 57. And uh, that was fun. Jimmy Bond on bass, Richard Wyand on piano, the trio. Ella was very nice. She, she was great. That was good. I didn't record with her, unfortunately, because she wasn't recording. We were touring. And then I was still working with Frank in Vegas with uh, Donald O'Connor, uh, Betty Hutton. Remember Betty Hutton? I worked with her, that was fun. And, and then when Frank came back, I uh, started working with Frank again. But then I started to, I was married, uh, and uh, I met a beautiful Norwegian girl in, in uh, uh, Las Vegas, dancer. And uh, yeah, we were married for 57 years. Wow, wow huh? And, and so she, she danced for a while, and then she did, started a career as a runway model. And she did that for years. L.A., New York, you know, had a great career, too. And so she turned down a lot of the traveling stuff and, and because she started to raise kids. And Frank worked all the time now. Now he's starting to go on the road work. So I had a big decision to make. I want to be a studio drummer. I want to be Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer. And I want to do that. And, uh, you know, and if you... Going out of town all the time, leave, leave, being out of, out of town, and the contractors call you as the kiss of death. If you're not available, they don't call next time. Oh, he's out of town. Well, he's out of town. They think you're out of town forever. But there was so much work back then in the 60s that uh, even though I was traveling. But anyway, uh, I stopped working with Frank. But except for uh, later on doing some of the recording. Uh, uh, Strangers in the Night being, uh, being one of them. But that was Hal Blaine. Hal Blaine was doing all the recordings there, and he was perfect for that kind of stuff. But he called me and he said, look, I'm doing Sinatra stuff uh, for a few days, and uh, I have something very important at MGM I have to do at a certain time, whatever it was. And he said, come in and, and, and finish it up for me. He said, I, he said to me, I did all the hard stuff, you know, and, and I'm glad he did. Well, nothing hard on there, it was very simple. Rock and roll back then was boom, back, boom, back, boom. Now, I mean, you got Vinny and Dave and, and uh, all of these guys, they carried it out of sight, you know. Fantastic players. But back then, you know, that's where, anyway, uh, uh, that was it. And, uh, and it was great. And with Frank, and then I started uh, uh, having a, a good career working, you know. 8, 10, 12, 14 times a week back then. You know, you can talk to any of the guys who are still alive. I've got all my books from the 50s up until today. I've got a cardboard box with all of my date books, I can tell you. You ask me, 
1969, uh, you know, uh, April 4th, what, what, what were you doing? I'll look it up I'll, and I'll tell you. I was at uh, NBC uh, working with, uh, uh, rehearsing with the Jackson Five. Or uh, 1968, uh, uh, I was uh, rehearsing with that guy there, Elvis Presley. At, at NBC for the for the comeback special 1968 and uh, Hal had the job again but he wasn't showing up for rehearsals because he was too busy doing record dates so I got to, to play with Elvis and and uh, and then and then we did the album and we, when we did the album uh, on, uh, did a capital he was on capital wasn't he did a capital album uh, Hal played drum set and I and I played conga and bongos and Whatever I could pick up, really, you know, but I was on the date and and that's 40 years ago and the guys that were on that I think Chuck Chuck Berghofer and and Don Randy and some of the guys uh, I was on a panel uh, not too long ago with some of those guys and we were talking about those days and the recordings and uh, We've been getting residuals for 40 years oh, And I almost turned the job down and yeah and and the best uh, and we you know we get rerun stuff uh, new use they call it you know mm. uh, Sinatra and and um, a, a lot of people uh, mostly pop stuff not too much from the jazz mostly pop but but Elvis uh, thank you Elvis great guy great yeah. guy we rehearsed in a room about this size uh, piano I think Claude Williamson was a piano player myself and uh, Elvis was sitting on a stool around the piano, and he'd always have a couple of his buddies there, you know, uh, cousins or whatever. They'd be clowning around between, uh, during breaks. And Elvis was great. He was in his prime then, you know. Every day he wore a black shirt and black pants. Every day the same thing. That was far out for those days. And uh, nice, nice guy. Called everybody, sir. How are you today, sir? And he came in one day, and he and, he and his buddies were smoking these little cigars, you know. And he had a pack of them. And I looked at him, I said, oh, I didn't know you smoked cigars, Elvis. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give you a couple of them. Here, here, light up. And I didn't smoke. But when Elvis offers you a cigar, you smoke. It's like the time I, I was in a car with, with Charlie Parker. Uh, it's related to this. Uh, in the hotel I was living uh, in, on, uh, on 50th Street, 200 West 50th Street uh, in New York. Uh, it's a little short block between 6th Avenue and Broadway at a hotel. That's the hotel where Jerry Mulligan and, and, and Chuck and, uh, and Red Mitchell and all these guys lived. <clears throat> and Red Rodney, I was hanging out with Red Rodney. So one afternoon, Red said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, let's go uptown to Joe Maney's pad. Joe Maney was this crazy wild uh, alto player. He shot himself by accident. Uh, yeah, he's a great player, but he had a, he had an apartment uptown, and it was kind of down in the basement, and you could play there 24 hours a day. Nobody could hear you, so everybody would go up there to the jam. He said, let's go up to Joe's, uh, Joe Maney. So we did that. We got, got on the subway, went uptown, and uh, we're, we're sitting. We weren't playing. We were sitting on a bench here listening to great old bebop players play. Not old. There we are. And the door opened, and then walks Charlie Parker. And so... He, I had met him a couple of times around, you know. Wonderful man, great guy, very nice gentleman. I, you know, we, we knew he was doing all the drugs, and the, but he never looked like he was stoned, never. Never looked drunk, never looked stoned, always 
proper, clean, and great vocabulary. It's amazing. They tell me he needed no, no formal education, but where he picked up all this knowledge and everything, even with his playing, all his quotes, he would play the classical. Anyway, he comes over to us. How you fellas doing, aren't you? Okay. He said, come outside to see my new automobile. And we said, yeah, sure. So Red and I go outside, and it's a 1951 or something, brand new Cadillac with the, I think the fins, it had the fins starting black, it's a Cadillac. Where he got the money to get, because he spent all his money, you know, whatever money he had. He must have gotten a couple of residual checks, uh, big ones or something, and was able to buy, put a down payment. So at least for a while he had this Cadillac. And so we got in, I'm sitting in the back, and Bert is driving, and Red, Red's sitting next to him. So we're driving around town, you know, it's Cadillac. It's a big deal then. And, and Bert says, what do you think of the ride, fellas? What do you think? And I said, oh, it's great. I've never been in a Cadillac before, you know. And we said, oh, it's wonderful. So he goes in his pocket and he takes out a joint, you know, and lights it up. And he's smoking. And he hands it to Red. Now, I had smoked pot before, but I could not handle it. Maybe it's because I was so skinny and scrawny and, you know, <laughs> whatever. Whatever, but I could not handle it. I, I, and playing, forget it. I tried to play one time, and um, forget it, missing the symbol. So, so that was out. But again, you know what I said? When Elvis offers you a cigar, you know. So Bird, there, smoke the joint. And then at one point, Bird turns around and hands it to me. And he's got the mirror, you know, so I can't fake it. So I go, so I take a hold of it, and then I give it back to him. But I, anyway. That was, that was my uh, experience with Bird. He was great. He was wonderful. Uh, one time we're working, at, we worked a lot at Birdland with Terry Gibbs Quartet. We worked there a lot, opposite Basie, opposite Duke, opposite uh, uh, Bird, opposite um, uh, the Birth of the Cool Bay and Miles. Mm. So often, I, got, I knew Roy Haynes and Art Blakey and all the guys who played with those bands and uh, uh, Kenny Clark, and I'd get to play. They would get me to sit in because uh, they'd come in late, in the, uh, late uh, doing a record. One time, uh, Roy was playing with um, uh, uh, what, was, what was referred, what was called the uh, Bird Lane All-Stars. Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Bud Powell, Tommy Potter, that's the band, you know. So Terry Gibbs and I never left. The, during breaks, we never went outside. You know, during uh, when we quit, we'd, we'd stay, you know, and listen to all of this. It was great. So Roy, Roy is playing drums. <clears throat> so Roy said to me one night, he said, Frankie, you, you cover for me the first set tomorrow night. He said, I've got a record date uh, downtown. Okay, you play with the Bird and Dizzy. I said, yeah, so I got to play a set with Bird and Dizzy. And then later on, I got to play uh, a couple of tunes. They were rehearsing the bird and strings after the recordings were done. You know, Buddy Rich played drums on that, on that album, on one album of theirs, I don't know how many, how many they did. But so I got to play a little bit on that, that was fun. And then, oh, and then another time, uh, Miles, Miles is there with the Birth of the Cool, you know, the band with the tuba and all that, uh, Gil Evans wrote that band. Max did the recordings on that, but, uh, but uh, Roy was playing. And, uh, or Blakey, might have been Art. 
what one of the two it's so long ago but but I remember playing and uh, I got to play with uh, uh, I play a set with with that band so that that was that was a great experience and, and uh, miles was a, a different personality than bird and dizzy bird and dizzy were open had a great sense of humor and and uh, just wonderful and miles was miles miles was kind of distant and grumbling about you know different things I mean I loved his his playing you know at that time but uh, and then I then I ran into him I ran into him out here years later at Jazz City I was playing in there with Buddy DeFranco and he was going to open the next night and we were closing and I, I'm, I'm you know during a break and he said what are you doing here what are you doing here I said I'm living out here miles and I'm working with Buddy I just Oh, okay. You know, I, I mean, that's it. That was it. <laughs> well, that's the way he, you know, that's Miles. Yeah. He, was, he was great. So that was Frank DeVito. And we're going to round out this segment on recording sessions by uh, jumping back to Chuck, who is going to be talking about working on Nancy Sinatra's version of These Boots Are Made for Walking and that iconic bass line you're going to hear. And we have to pause before we hear Chuck and give an ultimate shout out to Mike for his post-production and editing because we had a very good conversation around this song earlier and he's got to splice it out of our earlier and fit it in here <laughs> and it's going to be awful and he's going to hate us. So Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You're awesome. You're welcome. <laughs> so here's Chuck and some phenomenal editing work of a discussion surrounding These Boots Are Made For Walking when Chuck did the boots are made for walking baseline, like mm -hmm. the documentary, they talk about how like no one, no one can do that baseline like he can. Mm -hmm. And it's like people have tried yeah. and very talented bassists have tried, but it just isn't the same. Mm -hmm. Like there's something he adds to it that nobody can replicate. Plus, I mean, think about it. Who tunes down their instrument while they're playing it? I yeah. mean, right. you don't do that. Yeah. that right. Especially I think at that time, the creativity of it had a lot to do with the playing style and technique, not a trickery of, you know, making sounds different because right. you're tuning it down. Yeah. And I think that boldness that he had changed the way people listen to music mm -hmm. and certainly the bass. And many people try to emulate that phrasing and that style after it. Um, but I think at the time, it must have been wildly crazy. Can we talk about the... Um these boots and, and your your position on that. For example, did you know uh, about, did you hear the tune before you walked in? No, no. In fact, I've got somewhere in my stuff, I have a copy of uh, uh, of the of the date. The, the assistant engineer I still see once in a while, and, and he, he, he kept a copy of it. And so it starts off with Lee Hazel saying, oh, Okay, you ready? Take one. Boots are made for walking. It goes through seven takes, and you can hear it changing as we go, you know, different things. Uh, yeah, trying different things. So, yeah, no, I had no idea. You know, just another. Billy Strange wrote that little that slide, but different. He did it in quarter tone. So, originally, it went D, A, D, A, D, A, D, A, D, A, D, A. You know, instead of that, I just stretched it out all just to. I've just stretched it out through the whole thing to you, you know, for the, uh, that's only, uh, but it's still, the bass line was the hook on that whole thing, you know. 
I was lucky to be there. So we had a great shout out to Mike for his post-production magic. I also want to give a nice shout out to Elizabeth for her pre-production uh, magic. She's the one who outlines our podcast and did a phenomenal job on this particular one. There's so many people to choose from and different elements within the collection to narrow it down for one podcast. So my hat's off to her. Um, and uh, as she has organized it, our last segment uh, today is the influence of the Wrecking Crew. How did you prepare this part? This last segment is going to be all about the influence of the Wrecking Crew. So not only just their lasting impact on music and the shape of pop music, rock and roll, however you want to classify the genre, but also how this group of studio musicians put their personal stamp on famous records that we've all heard. Right. The recordings wouldn't be the way they are without these musicians. Because people like Brian Wilson arranged and wrote for the Beach Boys had a very concrete version in his head of what he wanted, but when he turned it over to musicians other than the Beach Boys, a.k.a. the Wrecking Crew, mm. they made it their own unique sound right. that then became identified as, air quotes, the Beach Boys. Mm. And I think one of the reasons why this is really important to point out is that unlike today, if there were musicians who were contributing to a song, they would get songwriting credits. These guys never got songwriting credits, even though they helped manipulate these songs to a point of changing them and adding, as you said, the personal stamp. So I think this is a very important element of why these guys are extra special. And didn't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, for a lot of these guys, they don't get the royalties. They got a flat, flat studio fee for the most part. Mm -hmm. They cut the recording right and then they saw no money afterwards that's right well that was the gig is that right. you were you were paid union scale you were in the musicians union handbook they called you you went in for the gig you got maybe 35 dollars for the session and that was it if that song turned into a million seller you got the 35 dollars uh, that's that was part of the deal but i think Along the way, some of these guys also wrote some songs, so mm -hmm. they would get credits for those. But for the most part, that was part of the deal. And I think a, a, a cool perspective to look at it through is uh, what Denny Tedesco said in his interview on how it was just his dad's job. You know, some some kids, their dad is a plumber, you know, grabs his tools, goes to work. And Denny said his dad was, it was just his job and his tools happened to be a guitar and it was just he would go to work every day like any other dad and it's just weird to think like you don't really think of oh my dad's going to work to cut like the new frank sinatra album like you don't really think of it like that plus you also it's hard for me to realize that they're letting go of it too you've mm. created something and that's not yours anymore right you know like sip doing the beginning of the uh the frank sinatra song it's like you own that though you know you that's you that's you and that's your contribution but he gets the satisfaction of knowing mm -hmm. that but he doesn't get any royalties for that well and it seemed like the theme throughout like a lot of carol k's interview and stuff like that is the trade-off is yeah you might not get the very upfront fame and fortune but you also got to go home to your family right so you got yeah. to be a musician you got to do what you love you got to make a living but you got time with your kids. Right. You're not on tour for your entire right. life or trying to promote all of these songs. You're just letting the creativity and the ideas flow, creating the best possible music you can, and then 
just kind of letting go of it and, letting and being able to just go grocery shopping. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're on, <laughs> I, Hal Blaine was on 163 number one records and yet he could still go shopping. How many other people right. could say that? Right. <laughs> That's crazy. It's crazy if you think about it. I mean, yeah, they could have insane. a normal quote, normal life. That's right. a very good observation for sure. I mean, from, from the inside, I would imagine it's kind of viewed as the best of both worlds. Mm. You yeah. get to make music. You get to say you had all these number one records, but you get normalcy. Right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, here is Hal Blaine talking about pretty much everything we were just talking about. My understanding about what, particularly what the Wrecking Crew did, and even talking with people like Carol Kay. Absolutely. You guys did have a part in, in what the sound actually was. It may have had an idea when you guys got together, maybe you had a flare in the drums that wasn't there before, but that really made the record. This Absolutely. There's no question that I co-produced many, many records. I've said in the past many times, there's hardly been a, a, a tra- drum track that I've made that I didn't produce. So that was Hal, and next up is going to be our final clip from Denny Tedesco, and he's going to be talking about that documentary we've kind of been plugging throughout this podcast. And again, um, if this podcast has been of interest to you, we definitely recommend you checking it out. It's well put together. A lot of the familiar names and faces will pop up in it, and uh, it's just, it's really well done from someone as close to the inside as you could possibly get. I'm sort of curious, how did the the movie come about? Movie came about because... I always wanted to tell that story of these session musicians. People assume I know, I knew what my dad did. When we were growing up, we really, dad was a guitar player. I didn't really know what he did. I knew he went to work and he played with different people, but I didn't know who he was playing with, you know. And so later when, in the early 70s, I'm 11, 10, 11, and when someone said to me, your dad's on the Partridge Family album, because now they're giving credits. And I, you know, again, I didn't realize, I went, oh, that's cool, you know, then I realized. It wasn't until high school that I started realizing what he did and he was doing his own stuff, jazz stuff. I wanted to tell the story, Dad got sick in uh, 96. Well, let's go back, 92 he had a stroke. And it, it affected, obviously it stopped his career and his tracks, but it affected all of us because it was just sad, even though he loved Plain. I mean, that was even though he wasn't getting the calls, he still loved, you know, the instrument, and he just couldn't play it to his capability. He could still play, but there was no way he was going to take a date, you know, and take a chance on being caught, you know, in a situation. So it was always sad because I saw people in their when I say in their 60s. Now I'm 56, so 60 seems so old at that point, but it wasn't, and that was the thing was ageism in our world what bothered me was you're still creative at 60 you're still creative at 80 why isn't someone taking these people who have this hell of a reputation who have the chops of god i mean they're playing their guitars and their drums like no one and they're in all the younger guys are in all of them but no one's taking advantage of it to mm-hmm. let them create so i decided this is the time to tell the story dad got cancer. He only had a year to live. So I quickly jumped into that round table and started putting the guys together. And dad never saw a piece of it because I was shooting film at the time. And uh, he died in 97, 98. I started trying to get money for him. 
went everywhere. You know, I had a 14-minute piece, and people, wow, this is great, but you're never going to get this made. The reason was there's so much music you need. No one's going to pay for this. No, and it was economics. It wasn't about the labels and publishers. If I invest this much, but it's going to cost this much, why am I going to invest? That's what people's theories were. Mm. And, well, I just had to keep going. And I just finished it, and uh, we did it by basically borrowing things you're not supposed to do, you know, for credit cards and all that. Don't do it. Um, but in the end, I got the film in the festivals. It did extremely well in festivals, but no one would pick it up. 2010, I decided, what am I going to do? I have too many awards, too much invested. So I figured out ways of raising money. Everything this is before Kickstarter, so I would have screenings. You could be a, a, a you know between you donate under a hundred dollars, you're a groupie. Hundred to three hundred, you're a roadie. And then I just kept putting in, and people started you know spreading the word. It became. I'm very proud of the movie, not just because about my dad or about us or my you know these guys. I'm proud of it because it's about every musician that ever picked up that instrument. Everybody that ever had a dream of doing something, every artist, it, you try, you try, you try, and sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. Some of it's because by accident, that film. When I watched audiences, there's 110 songs in that film, and 100 of them, they will know. The other 10 are from the guys themselves that are underscore. And I watch audiences from different generations, everybody has a, that song, but it's a bookmark in their life. Mm. You know, so you're 17 at the time, well, you know what? I'm 10 at that time, you know what I mean? So it was really cool to watch people, and it affected people, and it's about the music. And these musicians, their honesty affected everybody. They're not stars. They were stars among the stars, but they're just real people. Our dads were just, that's what they were, dads. You know, and they went to work like any other, you know, dad. They just didn't have tools like drills. They had strats and tellies and amps and banjos and mandolins. That's what their tools were. So, That's I'm just cool. yeah, and just you know, I have such respect for any musician because I don't play. And we couldn't have a podcast specifically a Wrecking Crew podcast without our final uh, voice. And that is from our good friend, Jim Horn. Yay, Jim. So Jim is <laughs> one of our, if you listen to a previous podcast about our favorite web clips, Jim is on that list. And uh, Jim plays saxophone and flute and oboe. He plays lots of stuff, yeah. but those are his two main. Yeah, mainly saxophone yeah. and flute. And he was a part of the Wrecking Crew, and we thought it would be very fitting to have him speaking about what the Wrecking Crew means to him, because he was involved. And it's a great final thought. So with that, here is Jim Horn. What does the term Wrecking Crew mean to you? I mean, where, where did that come from? And did you guys know, did you call yourselves that back in the day? Uh, Hal Blaine thought of that name. Uh, I think it was just trying to be funny. Uh, you know, little play on words, you know, the wrecking crew. We've come in to, to uh, get some, hit, you know, hit records or great records. And so the wrecking crew is here, you know. Uh, instead of tearing down the building, we built something, you know. 
and uh, and I, he probably would be able to explain that better than anybody else. But that was the name that he came up with. The payoff to me are the artists that are just really nice people when they come in and uh, and they'll say hi and they'll talk to you and everything. You know, Reba McIntyre, she's the same way, uh, real sweet. And and uh, that that's the one thing I miss. Uh, is when you go into overdub, sometimes the artist doesn't even show up now, you know. But uh, you have to just uh, go with it, you know, whatever is going on today. It's just changed a lot, you know. So thanks for joining us for this podcast. We can't wait to have you guys back in two weeks. And in the meantime, if you could leave us some feedback on iTunes or SoundCloud, that would be greatly appreciated. And as always, if you have any comments or episode ideas or anything or interview suggestions for Dan, you can send those over to library at nam, N-A-M-M dot org. See ya in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> I was just saying it's gonna be it's gonna be cut anyway. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> I haven't been cutting the buys. I oh. started putting them in. It used to be that the buys would always one of us would go bye and then bye and then we'd all like start laughing and I'd stop recording. So it yeah. didn't really make sense. But, but it's important. Now I'll just put it's this us. whole explanation in it. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>